Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Peter Pike, who is an academic who teaches at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and is on leave there to teach at Yonsei University in Seoul in Korea. Peter, thanks a lot for joining me. It is a pleasure to talk to you about your book, From Utopia to Apocalypse, your book on our thinking about political revolution, about the possible end of liberalism or democracy or capitalism or all of them, and how this, although it's unimaginable in our lives, crops up intensely more and more in our entertainment or in our imagination, in our storytelling. Thank you for joining me. I am a grateful reader of your book, and hopefully we can get people interested in the main subject of your book, the graphic novelist, storyteller Alan Moore. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It's always a delight to talk to you, and I feel particularly honored to be able to talk about my book. It came out in 2010, and I've uh, thought about it off and on since then. And in my recent work, what I've tried to do is actually to build on the ideas that I explore in it. But I think also I should say that it was written in a very different historical moment. And one thing that I have had to do is to reconsider also some of my analyses and conclusions, given how much the world, and especially the United States, has changed just even in this last decade. Yeah, you're right. I also thought about that, that we used to believe that the post-Cold War era had a kind of establishment with the collapse of the USSR that would keep going and it would be characterized by a recovery of the contradictions within our democratic capitalist systems as they had existed outside or before the threat of nuclear annihilation in a conflict with the USSR. But in fact, what has become obvious since then is that we are undergoing pretty significant political changes that we cannot exactly put names to, that we cannot analyze with any plausibility. In short, we have no public vocabulary. There is nothing to tell the people. Why is it that we're so anxious, so angry, so given to conflicts, and at the same time so unable to change anything? And reading your book again made me think a lot of this was coming that I already see in your book a great distinction between our political morality, which is liberal democracy plus capitalism forever, it's the end of history and it's permanent, no more serious conflicts, and aside from this public morality or almost a civil religion, there is our imagination where we feverishly try to figure out what alternative arrangements might emerge and just how terrifying and bloody the transformation from our politics now to other politics might turn out to be. After the 2016 election, Brexit, all the conflicts in the European Union, the rise of China as a permanent fixture in global geopolitics, it is obvious that the dreams of post-Cold War end of history were facile, were unimaginative. Yes, yes. I mean, some people have talked about how we're now undergoing the return of history, that we are going back to the old normal that we thought that we had overcome. I think that does capture a lot of what is happening, although I think the technological element also compels us to question some of the underpinnings. I mean, there's no straightforward return to history, of course, but I think it helps to think about our time in terms of cycles to uh, illuminate a lot of the otherwise hidden forces at work. But the problem is, I think during the period where we experienced the end of history, it was a period also of forgetting, in which we forgot in many ways quite deliberately about how terrible things could be. And I think this creates a very troubling sense of unease because we don't know how prepared we are for disaster. 
And that also means that we don't know whom to trust, right? I mean, if things go rapidly south, you know, which of the people that we know in our social circles or in everyday life might be someone whom we could rely on? You know, and of course, capitalism allows people to lead lives where they're free to pursue their personal fantasies and so on. But I think what that does is it puts a cloak around the social bond, turns the social bond into a huge question mark, right? So that this question of trust, we, on the one hand, take it as a condition of our prosperity that we don't have to trust anyone. But then, obviously, from our long sort of evolution as biological creatures, it's impossible, I think, to live, you know, without trust, Right, without knowing whom you can rely on. Yeah, you remind me of something I was talking about in our Western series with Professor John Marini. He made this observation, being a man of great antiquity, that up until really the mid-century liberal prosperity and its new political, economic, social consensus, it was not possible for people to be alone. You always needed other people, even in the 20th century. After this new establishment, which to a large extent depends on technological power, it became possible to be alone among other people. Because you don't really need anybody, and so you think you don't have to trust anybody, so long as a systemic normality obtains and is reinforced. But of course, the arrival of our fantasies of catastrophe, that we have no longer any popular visions of the future that are pleasant, hopeful, paradisiac. Everything is terrible in the future as we imagine it. All of that seems to rely precisely on this awareness that if things should go south quick, we have no idea what to rely on or indeed whether we can rely on ourselves and perhaps even more than that, whether we deserve to survive or to experience any humane good conditions. We take them for granted as they are, but we do not know whether they have a future or whether we have a future. Yes. And I think a lot of that is expressed in the fantastic storytelling of Alan Moore. These graphic novels imagine hell on earth for us so that we can try and figure out where we in our world stand to these other possible worlds, alternative histories. They were done in the 80s, so they're necessarily in the context of the Cold War, and they would require very serious updating for a post-Cold War world, but which has never really been done, which I think is a kind of failure of the imagination when it comes to the movies. But it's very important to have this opportunity to compare what we think of as normality to what we think of as hell and figure out where we stand to it. Who is the real me in my life? And to what extent am I merely a creature of circumstances? And what kind of creature would I turn to in different circumstances? Alan Moore also goes so far as to suggest that in some ways hell has advantages. You will come to know yourself to some extent. It will no longer be merely living in illusions. There is also, I think, a justification for the storytelling of the apocalypse in Alan Moore because me as an individual, anybody as an individual, can go through a crisis. You get some incurable disease. By luck, a car hits you. Some catastrophe that's personal to you brings about the end of your illusions or indeed the end of the world. But the rest of the world goes on. If we have learned one thing from Islamic terrorism, for example, is that within days, if not hours, of a catastrophe in Europe, everybody looks the other way. Now, of course, some people's lives are changed forever. It can be a couple of hundred dead kids at a concert, and their families are scarred forever, but everybody else looks the other way as soon as is possible. 
and the country will not say or do anything as a whole to adopt as public these victims and to say something about the common good and what justice would require. You're alone in tragedy. And so Alan Moore comes along and says, well, let's imagine a tragedy that is national or indeed global. You won't be alone anymore. Your anxieties or fears or nightmares, everybody will have to share in them. What are we going to do then? Who are we really? And this seems to me to have been missed in most of the Hollywood adaptations of Alan Moore. In your book, when you talk about V for Vendetta, which was transformed into movies by the Wachowski brothers, then now sisters, who created the Matrix movies... And in that movie, fascism isn't either attractive or dangerous. It's easily toppled over in a Hollywood narrative, but it also has no seduction power because there's no necessity to compel you in that direction. It's flimsy. I think Zack Snyder did a much better job with Watchmen to set the story in a post-Cold War environment in which you have to look at the whole train of post-war American grandeur the rise of American empire, of technological powers, of all these things, and figure out what does it mean as a radicalization of individualism. Everything is individualism in the case of Snyder's story. And that, of course, neglects the political dimension that we are all in it together when tragedy strikes. So even in the best-case scenario, you experience certain losses because we don't have any way publicly to imagine that we're in crisis. Watchmen is being adapted again for HBO. It's supposed to come out this year as a miniseries. And perhaps Mm -hmm. this will try to take account of the politics of Watchmen, of our own politics after the recent political struggles, when it's no longer possible to pretend that our only problem is individualism because we have political consensus. We no longer have political consensus. We have crisis on our hands. I wanted to add also that when I was working on this, What really inspired this project was my effort to understand why the Bush administration invaded Iraq. Before I started working on this book, I really didn't study politics very much. I was more interested in literary modernism. And in fact, I tried to keep my distance from politics, given the shape that it was taking. And there's a kind of an obligatory leftism in the academy, I mean, which seems mild now, (laughs) right? But uh, But back in the 90s, of course, it was there. And so I was really interested in how the process of creating a work of art would transform its creator. That became the basis of a dissertation, which I have not yet turned into a book. In fact, after 9-11, I became very, very interested in trying to learn about all the forces at work that had created this, that had led to this terrorist attack. You know, but also what, in some sense, were the necessities behind American power. I mean, certainly from a leftist standpoint, it's very easy to condemn the United States as imperialist or responsible for a great deal of injustice around the world. But then I asked myself, well, why, right? I mean, why might imperialism be necessary from the vantage point of the people who support it or maybe the people who might support it reluctantly? What are the choices in some sense that maybe they were not making explicitly, but they had made internally in order to be able to accept such a world? This brings us to Watchmen, the first of the Alan Moore comics we'll be discussing today. Moore wrote this in 1986-1987 at the last peak of the Cold War, and he meant it both as an examination of what has come of mankind, where technological progress leads to this standoff between superpowers that might lead to annihilation, and also as an examination of American society seen through the perspective of alternative history. What happens if the logic of the Cold War 
of American individualism, of power, of the rise of an empire, leads to fascism being accepted. Now this is partly because Moore was a leftist, but partly it has to do with his awareness that liberal democracy is not enough to satisfy all our longings and we are looking for heroes at some level. And so the alternative history of America since World War II, which he offers in Watchmen, is all about the rise of various kinds of heroes, from vigilantes to government agents, from people who save the country to people who do policing for the government against the people, and all the way to the creation of new gods. Nuclear power creates one, globalized capitalism creates another. These are Dr. Manhattan and Ozymandias, the most powerful creatures in the story. In their two different ways, as natural and political science, they are the climax of modern society. And it's a question, are they good for us? What will America have wrought if all our fantasies of power are fulfilled? That seems to be the question that orients the story. The connection between Cold War and superheroes seems to be the dark passions, the dark moods required to imagine our way out of an impasse and the dangers that come with a situation where we're so afraid that something terrible is going to happen. What happens if our anxieties become properly political, take shape? What if our nightmares start walking the earth in broad daylight? This is what we see in Watchmen. Ozymandias, a global capitalist, orchestrates a plot to murder other heroes and to force a resolution to the Cold War conflict by, in the absence of heroes, forcing everybody in the world, especially the USSR and the US, to make peace in face of an alien attack. With the destruction of the heroes, and with the emergence of this terrifying alien enemy, everybody else would become equal. There will no longer be the heroic aspiration that leads to inequalities, and therefore to war. Against Ozymandias, you see arrayed these other heroes, led by Rorschach, a vigilante who is intransigently dedicated to justice, understood as punishing wicked men. The Night Owl and Silk Spectre, who are normal people who have turned to superhero crime-fighting without fully thinking through what that would do to them, but who have also been willing to return from that glamorous, if dangerous, life to a kind of normality, however boring it is once vigilantes become outlawed in America. Then there's Dr. Manhattan, who is also experiencing his own existential crisis. As a god among human beings, he finds it harder and harder to care about anything or anybody. And after serving America for decades, eventually winning for America the Vietnam War through nuclear attacks, he finds himself losing touch with his own humanity. And it all starts with the most interesting, most political of all these heroes, the comedian who is equal parts patriot and sadist, who was most involved with the government both in domestic and in foreign affairs, and who most embodies American manliness and violence. He becomes cynical and at the same time comes to despair when he learns of this horrifying plot to fake a nuclear attack and an alien attack all at once in downtown Manhattan. He is powerless to stop this, however, and the plot moves on, with Rorschach and his allies investigating the comedian's murder, while the plan to bomb Manhattan goes ahead without their knowing it. 
And so the fate of the world and the personal fate of these various heroes are intertwined in the story in an incredibly tense and skillful psychologically story. Now, Peter, how did you become interested in Watchmen? I gravitated towards Watchmen. Um, Of course, Watchmen ends with basically a staged attack, but an attack that takes thousands of lives in Manhattan. Uh, which causes a precipitous end to the Cold War. It seems to bring in a utopia. So Ozymandias, the uh, man who planned the attack, says you know, he decided to frighten the world into making peace by means of history's greatest practical joke. So I was very much drawn to the way in which this, you could say, evil causes change. When people are politically committed, they tend not to admit this. Right. They I mean, they will say that their side is good or they are pursuing you know, what is necessary. But what really astonished me about Watchmen was this very frank, very shocking depiction of how evil brings about good. Yeah. So in normal times, at least, we're convinced that morality wins and that it's as easy as saying that right makes might especially because America has never experienced the kinds of catastrophes that have been, if not common, then certainly unforgettable everywhere else in the world. Americans do not know what it means to have been occupied, to suffer invasion, and therefore to experience the obliteration of justice, to be ruled without consent or concern. So morality is just way more powerful in America than it is in other places. And to some extent, that's also connected to the fact that Americans are more Christian than Europeans who experienced the 20th century as a collapse of faith. But in these Alan Moore stories, like in Watchmen, you get to see evil on a vast scale as a kind of engine of change. You have to react to something. Something has to wake you up to reality. It's not as simple as saying that might makes right, reversing the American rule of morality that right makes might, but certainly right and might now exist in a very strange struggle, the end of which cannot be predetermined. You do not know for sure, that is to say, whether human choice will overcome necessity. Maybe necessity is the stronger force. And of course, human choice, because it is all of a sudden involved in a struggle with necessity, becomes complicated because human choice itself reveals itself to be divided in between what we would think of as freedom, a willful self-defense, self-assertion, love of our fellow Americans, of fellow human beings, and of the way we have lived, And on the other hand, our intelligence, which requires adaptation to necessity. And heroes are such a great vehicle for this imagination of political transformation in Alan Moore's Watchmen, because superheroes are supposed to embody the contradiction and also maybe resolve it somehow. For normal people, however much you love moral things, sometimes you have to do immoral things because you don't have enough power. But a superhero might have enough power to just win, to go beyond tragedy. If, on the other hand, a superhero cannot overcome tragedy, necessity overcoming human choice, then none of us ultimately can, and we have to square with our political limits, even in our imagination. It is no longer a matter of saying that if only we had enough power, if only our favorite faction or party could get rid of the other one. If only half the nation disappeared into a cloud, the other half we would be happy and free. It's not that simple. 
there's never going to be enough power. It's impossible for us to have enough power to solve problems because power is not by itself enough because power is not by itself good. Good and yes. evil are intermingled in power just as they are in morality. So I see here two different motifs at work that you know find myself tracking in the modern world. And the first is the power of forgetting, right? That in order for human beings to live in peace, I guess in the words of Pierre Manant, the French Catholic philosopher, they have to forget the violent origin of their societies. They can't look too directly at the origin. Peaceful, ordinary life involves a certain level of self-delusion. In some sense, I mean, one can't be too harsh towards this necessity. And it's what enables the everyday world to function, right? It, it's what allows us to go get something to eat or to engage in commerce and reap the benefits of commodious living. Yeah, um, and of normal living. Everyone, even in a normal world, or perhaps especially in a normal, peaceful, prosperous world, has had the experience of, say, a nightmare, of something that makes you incredibly afraid. You become keenly aware of everything because you're desperately trying to defend yourself from you know not what. Nobody could make that into the common way of living. That's an exceptional experience. And to go on with life, just like to go on back to bed after a nightmare, requires forgetting it. You had a bad experience, you know, your car was hit. Well, if you survive, sooner or later you have to not just let the adrenaline go away, but forget about it. You cannot wow. live all of your life in relation to that extreme experience. Well, okay, but then it's possible that we as modern people cannot do this, right? Um, there's a very interesting line in uh, Love and Friendship by Alan Bloom, where Bloom says that um, in the Middle Ages, the church made it possible for everyday life to disappear. <laughs> and the lives that people had became a drama of salvation. Yeah, the Church of Saints and Sinners the statues on gothic cathedrals of grotesque devils and ascending saints aspiring to heaven. And something of this insight also comes across in Kurt Vonnegut's novel Cat's Cradle, where he has an imaginary religion put together by a calypso singer in which he says that uh, good societies, it is necessary to keep the tension high between good and evil. So in other anthropological situations, there are alternatives. But I think we as modern people are not able to see ourselves or even desire these alternatives. Although these alternatives that might appear grotesque to us might become necessary. Yeah, in American terms, it would be trying to normalize the Salem witch trials, the oppression of Catholics or the oppression of Mormons, or on the other hand, the heroic narrative of Mormons migrating out west in search of freedom to establish the true faith. There are some limited experiences, or I guess in terms more popular in American literature, this would be the Western that ends with yes. John Ford, but had started really with James Fenimore Cooper back in the days when the Ohio Territory was the West, the extreme frontier of freedom where civilization and savagery or nature conflict. Those things do necessarily recede in our imagination, but I don't think this is just us moderns. You're perfectly right that there's a kind of alternative which for us would seem to be Christian fanaticism, normalized. But this was not the way that Greek cities went through life, or you know, this was not the way of the Persians, let's say, in Herodotus. It was not the way of the Romans. These alternatives of more natural life, where you may lose sight of what makes you human, and on the other hand, religious fanaticism, where you can never lose sight of what makes you human, but you lose sight of everything else, you're right that they seem somehow to exist as alternate states. And to bring this back again to our American experience, 
I have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord, mm. right? The battle hymn of the Republic, this sort of Christianity at the height of the regime in the Civil War, shows that even we are capable of such experiences. Even we can say that I have seen the three-forked lightning of his justice's flashing sword. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. His yes. truth is marching on. The truth or the revelation of Christianity in that case requires war, destruction, wrath. Not yes. peaceful coexistence in a prosperous commercial republic. A rather different understanding of what makes us human and therefore what is demanded of us if we are to stay together, if we are to be the community we think we are. Yes. And indeed, then we forget about it, at least until the next crisis, of course. Yeah. And yet it's the kind of zeal that doesn't really seem to be part of the Cold War context. For example, if we take two of the heroes in Watchmen, the old Night Owl, who's kind of a very affable and kind and religiously devout Christian, and then the comedian, who is completely atheistic, unabashedly triumphalist, a very brutal and violent personality. And yet he sees himself as the fulfillment of the American dream. Right? I mean, I guess he's a kind of a figure, you know, like that Cormac McCarthy, right, in um, Blood Meridian. He's the, I'm trying to remember what the name of that character is, the preacher, right, the one. Judge Holden. Yeah, he's a kind of a larger-than-life figure who has no restraints, right, and who represents a freedom that is... Well, if he were perhaps a European figure, there'd be something kind of fateful about him, right? But he's not. He's born in the promise of the new world, and it's only when he uncovers the plan that he experiences himself as fateful. He's a very interesting character. He's not a figure that one so much experiences anymore, but he's, in some sense, the image of the United States as powerful, unapologetic, very arrogant, <laughs> and harsh and brutal, but also strangely, let's always say this, I think from an old world perspective, maybe there's still something innocent about him. Of course, that's the quality that's probably the most difficult to pinpoint in him. In spite of all his violence and brutality, he's unabashedly the new man of this new world. Yeah, so he thinks he has seen through the joke that is American morality. American morality is only sustained by American power, and American power cannot afford to say no, to stop, to restrain itself. And so there's a connection between American power as an empire that has to fight off the Nazis, has to fight off the Soviets. There's always an enemy out there that tells you you need more power, more violence, more technology, more concern for danger, violence, and destruction. And on the other hand, his own personal problems. Comedian gets a chance in the American mid-century to let his freak flag fly, to let mm -hmm. his nightmares walk the streets, let it all hang out, express yourself. Of course, in his case, he's not a nice hippie. He's a killer. He's a rapist. Yeah. But he too gets his opportunity in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And he thinks that he can match these two things. The crisis of the system. We want to be moral. But first, let's kill the Nazis. Then let's kill the Soviets. And now let's kill ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whoever. And on the other hand, his own personal problem that he has identified freedom with lack of self-restraint. Yes. If you do like the Christian, if you do like the man of justice, like the decent citizen, then you're always saying no to your dark desires. You're frightened of what your nightmares reveal about you. If you say yes to all these things, you can be free. But he hasn't thought through the consequences of human dangerousness. The fact that in our nature, there is something dark. He thinks that it's something you can let out for a stroll. 
it doesn't occur to him that it too could be taken under rational control to fulfill the dream of rational control. So for comedian, the American dialectics is personal freedom, which might involve start murdering people, at least if, you know, you're doing it in Vietnam, because that's okay. And on the other hand, American power, which requires rational control of the world so that Americans don't get murdered by the Nazis, by the Japanese, by the Soviets, by the Muslim terrorists from wherever. And he never thought through the fact that human freedom might turn out to mean using all of technological power in order to solve the problem of rational control once and forever. Ozymandias is humiliated by this guy's swagger, by his immorality, by his shameless ugliness, because he tells a truth that beautiful people, noble people don't want to admit. You really do have to do a lot of violence to secure American freedom whether it's a war against Mexico or various wars against Indians or any number of other things that we have since forgotten about. And so Ozymandias says, okay, let's do this the way the comedian wants. Let's actually employ rational control to the nth degree. Let us take everything under scientific control and then human beings will finally obey. They will finally become compliant, no longer dangerous. Ozymandias takes what he sees in Comedian and he thinks, okay, there's some truth here. The problem is that the human race can still produce types like the Comedian. How can we create a human race where this will never happen? You cannot solve the problem of human evil without solving the problem of Comedian. You have to acknowledge the truth he tells about human ugliness and then fix it. And so Zimandia sets on a path to commit every horror he can conceive of that serves the ultimate purpose of rational control. And Ozymandias is a figure, both in the movie and the novel, of capitalism. He is a global capitalist who rules by his intelligence, but his intelligence is continuously glamorized by his beauty and his charm. But that intelligence itself is ugly. He is not the humanitarian or role model or liberal that even he thinks of himself as being sometimes. He is the rule of rational control. You have to remove from human beings their capacity to even think of doing evil. And that means doing more evil than any human being conceivably could. In that sense, Ozymandias is the full opposite of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered injustice and evil that no human being would suffer. That is a proof of divinity. He is willing to perpetrate Ozymandias' evil on this scale. That's what it takes to scare people out of being evil. And he himself thinks of it as a hoax. He thinks you can lie yourself into peace and that there is actually no other way. Human perversity can only be terrified. It cannot be educated. It can't be enlightenment. It has to be a great lie and a great violent lie. Yes. And this is very interesting. Uh, Now, in talking about uh, Ozymandias this way, it kind of makes me realize that in some sense we are in his age, right? I mean, he's the figure of the tech, you know, the Silicon Valley billionaire. Right, the yep. person who has so much money, right, and so much, you know, advanced technology at his disposal that he can remake the world. Yeah. Whereas I think the comedian has really declined in the American imagination. Yeah. Right. We're now uh, peaceful. I mean, We're now moral. Well, if we think about the depiction of the American soldier in recent years, and what is it in, in Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, mm-hmm. we have again a very capable man who does things on the battlefield that really shock us. Right. And yet somehow he's someone who cares about his fellow soldiers, right? who cares about his fellow Americans. He hasn't lost contact or actually he sees himself as a figure of self-restraint. Yes, he is essentially an American stoic. 
Yes. You have um, to assume a certain duty and to become aware of the fact that there is not enough providence or protection. You have to supply it and uh, you will have to pay the price for it. It will do certain things to you that you maybe didn't know when you signed up for it. But you have to do it because your fellow Americans need that protection. And in their good, you are justified. So what I find interesting is that someone like the figure of Chris Kyle becomes prominent to us at a time when our wars do not seem to have an end. Right. Yes. The struggle, you know, like the goals of our wars seem hopelessly out of reach. Yes. Whereas I think the comedian can only become an emblematic figure when the United States wins its wars. Exactly. He because, is a figure of victory. Yes, because the comedian has no nobility, because victory is always of ambiguous nobility. In defeat, nobility is obvious. Yes. And Chris Kyle dies. His service to his fellow soldiers eventually leads one of these fellow soldiers who is crazy to kill him. Chris Kyle has defeated madness or the temptation of madness, but not everyone has. And he yes. becomes to some extent a sacrificial figure because America doesn't know what to do with soldiers and American politics doesn't know what to do with war. Yeah. It creates martyrs, but it cannot create, you know. There's a really good book by Todd Lindbergh, The Heroic Heart, Greatness Ancient and Modern. Great study of American heroism that points to things like Medal of Honor citations. Starting in World War II, the greatest honor the American Congress can offer, the Congressional Medal of Honor, they're no longer for men who are the greatest warriors imaginable. They are for men who sacrifice in the most unimaginable ways to save other people. And that is a great difference. Do you want the greatest warrior or do you want the warrior that does the greatest good to his fellow soldiers given their vulnerability, given their mortality? But that's not who Comedian is. Comedian is very much like Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. He's a guy who has stepped out of the circle of law and morality. He's not mm-hmm. completely without honor, actually. Not just because fundamentally he can be shocked by evil, as is proven. He is defeated by Ozymandias, not just in a physical combat, but in a moral combat. Ozymandias yeah. has proven that he's actually more evil than this guy who's murdering women and children. Because comedian never decided it was choice-worthy to murder women and children. Ozymandias did. Yes, yes. It's a very powerful moment in Watchmen where comedian confesses to his former adversary that he had done terrible things in Vietnam. But you know what's really interesting about the atrocity that we do see him commit in which he shoots down his pregnant lover? What is going through his head is his anger that Dr. Manhattan is sleeping with his daughter. Yeah. And so his moment of rage, paradoxically, doesn't come from arrogance or from sadism. It's actually this moment where he does not want his daughter to be thrown away by this um, immortal being, right? To be used and, and cast aside like Dr. Manhattan had treated his first lover. Yeah. These are the things that, evil as they are, also reveal comedian's humanity, his weakness. It is his anger at his own powerlessness. Comedian projects swagger everywhere. He's Mr. American Manly. But he's not all-powerful. In fact, we learn from the beginning how mortal he actually is. And this, yeah. and therefore Alan Moore has these moments when his weakness or his mortality is revealed. This comes from a kind of insight that is unavailable to moral people, but has always been known, say, to philosophers or prophets. That we get angry when we get defensive. That is to say, when we are afraid. That is to say, when we are aware of danger, of our yeah. limits. 
And the ultimate in that, of course, is tragedy, the ultimate confrontation of our limits that arouses us to our full self-defense. It may be enough, it may not be enough, but we try our damnedest in that moment. We are no longer complacent. We are no longer willing to let it go or leave it at that. If we do not simply blanch at evil or dismiss it, comedian's evil reveals something about his weakness, just like Ozymandias' evil reveals something about his. And in the case of Ozymandias, he is one of two gods that have been revealed by American power. But the other god, Dr. Manhattan, is literally immortal and indestructible. Ozymandias is broken himself in this twofold episode. He tries to stop Dr. Manhattan, to destroy him, to prove that he's not God. To, yes. But it turns mm -hmm. out that Dr. Manhattan is indestructible. Yeah. And because of yeah. this practical test, we're modern scientists, we do practical tests, experiments, let's call them. Ozymandias then turns to Dr. Manhattan and asks a question of a theoretical character. Was it worth it, what he did? If Dr. Manhattan is indeed God, then he knows the future. And if he knows the future, you have to ask him, did I do right? Because yes. we always act with a view to the future, but we can never know the results until it's too late. And Ozymandias admits by asking that question that he has been defeated, because he's not literally immortal and omniscient. But of course, Dr. Manhattan is modern science embodied. He is not caring he doesn't involve himself in human affairs much, and all he says is, nothing ever ends. Yes. That is to say, anything on whose importance you hinge is an illusion. You think that civilization, humanity, your own life are important, but they're only important to you. You're not asking what is the being. You're asking what good is it to me as a human being. And if that's your question, modern science cannot help you. Modern science has no answers to human questions, and so Zimandias is defeated by a power that doesn't involve itself in his concern. And this is only important to Ozymandias. Nobody else in the story cares about modern science that much. Ozymandias, however, as global capitalism, tries to use science for the human good. But he is forced to face a science that no longer cares about the human good. Yes, it's a very difficult moment. The ending is something that I always return to, and I feel like I'm missing something in this exchange. Would Ozymandias have been happy to have learned that maybe, well, the world will be at peace for maybe 200 years, you know, after you've committed this act, right? That what you created will survive you. And one thing that I think that Watchmen really gets at is perhaps the loss of our sense of eternity. I think it's really perfect that the story ends with this totally open-ended moment where the truth could be revealed or it might not. Yeah, right? and it, you it don't just, know what the consequences would be either way. It suspends us in this moment of complete uncertainty. And I think that that corresponds to, in some sense, the deterioration of our historical imagination. Our lives have become these moments of uncertainty right before the coming of a kind of transformative moment. Maybe this is what the end of history is, not being able to get past it. We always feel that we're on the threshold. But threshold, we're still stuck. Yeah, we're still stuck. Yeah, we haven't crossed it, but we know that we will cross it at some point. But it could also be that we will cross it at a moment you know, in which nobody is paying attention. Yeah, I think that both are involved in the ending Alan Moore gives to Watchmen. Because what Ozymandias tries to do is to fulfill the conditions of modern knowledge. Dr. Manhattan, like many scientific discoveries, is an accident. And you can't trust accidents. 
You can only trust that which you can control, that which you can make. And so Zimandias tries to reproduce the conditions of the experiment in yeah. the greatest replication thing in world history. If you can destroy Manhattan, then you know what it takes to make such a thing. Now you can be sure. And that means, under modern conditions, you actually have control over, well, a god. Mm -hmm. This would mean that human powers are at least potentially unlimited, or at least coextensive with the universe. His failure to destroy Dr. Manhattan means that whatever happened, that this new god of science emerged, science cannot control him. Mm -hmm. And therefore human powers are limited, and there are powers beyond human powers. And therefore what Ozymandias did is bound to fail in some way, although who knows in what way. Human powers in rational control in its highest achievement is still limited. And it's not limited because Dr. Manhattan is going to change what human beings have wrought. He is independent of human beings. It is limited simply because human beings are limited. Just like Dr. Manhattan is an embodiment of our physics or theoretical science, Ozymandias is an embodiment of our political science. He is the man who is in control of the world in indirect ways. This is the legacy we have from Machiavelli and Hobbes and Locke. Our forms of control are indirect control. Nobody stands up and says, by whatever right, I should rule and we're going to get these good things if I do. Or these bad things will happen if I don't. Rule is always indirect in our world. Yes. And Ozymandias is the ultimate expression of that indirect rule. A man who has control over the media, the liberal imagination of compassion and humanitarianism, capital, and therefore the economy, and who rigs up this scientific experiment. Put it all together and does it add up? It's not enough. And so the end of history is not enough. Eventually, yeah. human quarrels will start again. The ending of Watchmen seems to open up the possibility of utopia, but we are merely on the brink. Whereas Alan Moore wrote a story that ends with utopia, Miracle Man or Marvel Man, which he started publishing in 82. Moore was always fascinated with the heroes of comic books and trying to rewrite them. Watchmen features heroes who are mostly rewrites and reinterpretations of older, forgotten heroes. Miracle Man, however, was a Marvel property developed in Britain in the 50s and 60s, which fell into disuse and was recreated in the 80s. Here, Moore returns to his notion that atomic power has changed mankind. This, as well as an alien attack, another motif he picks up in Watchman, leads to the creation of Miracle Man himself, a creation of the British government. Britain, faced with its dwindling importance in the Cold War and the loss of its empire, has recourse not to nuclear powers but to genetic engineering to create Superman, and by accident, Miracle Man who will bring about the end of history. Miracle Man is both a normal person living a normal life in Britain and this completely different creature, more a god than a human being. This is Moore's portrait of the radical disjunction between the new powers we have unleashed and the normal lives we wish to live.
for them to be brought together in one person, the assumption of divine powers must become intentional, and indeed Miracle Man finds himself persuaded that conflict after conflict, both to recover his origins and to deal with the threats to mankind given the new powers unleashed by the atomic age, he has to install a new kind of theocracy transform mankind by having everybody be ruled directly by such new powers. At the end, there's only some Christian and Muslim fundamentalists who are still fighting against this new theocracy, and they are pitiful creatures indeed. So this is his exploration of the end of history that at least seems to be permanent. Human beings have finally been liberated from the curse of freedom, mortality, weakness, limits. What I think is interesting about more, if you look at Miracle Man or Marvel Man, is that he also seems to leave open this unimaginable possibility where actually control is successful, right? That this might actually be another kind of moment in, in our history. So there are two alternatives, two ways of getting to the nightmare. <laughs> One is that we fail to secure control of the future. Our institutions fall apart, you know, and so we revert back to a history of bloody struggles and civil wars. But I think the other, you know, more elusive possibility is that we actually succeed, yep. right? Um, and what would it mean for us to actually succeed? I mean, I think success will also mean some kind of nightmare, some kind of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. But at that level, the catastrophe is a lot harder, I think, to predict, simply because no precedent for it exists in human history. Yeah, so I was very interested in your introductory chapter, which I found fascinating, partly because Miracle Man deals with something that has been much on my mind lately. We inherit from our modern philosophers the notion that we will be using science to control nature and maybe human nature to secure the human good. And that would mean that science is tethered to the human good because of human nature. To take a simple example, the doctor can make you healthy in accordance with your nature as a human being. If he doesn't know what a healthy human being is, he can't help you. If he does, he can help you, but he can't make you into an animal or a god. Mm -hmm. His powers are limited by your nature. At any rate, his power to help, his power to destroy would be somewhat different. Nevertheless, the installation of modern power through modern philosophy leaves at least open the possibility of radical disjunction within human being between those who practice science and experiment on the rest of mankind and the rest of us who just suffer their experiments. Yes. And in the case of Miracle Man, you get to see the creation of new gods who, unlike the gods in Watchmen, decide to take rule. They will solve every human problem. They will make the end of history work by putting enough power behind our awareness of our neediness so that we satisfy all our desires. So long as you have these seemingly inexhaustible gods who make it their purpose to rule over mankind, then you are going to achieve a satisfactory end of history that is seemingly permanent. The second thing that I found fascinating in your description of Miracle Man and Alan Moore's thinking on what progress really amounts to if we achieve it is that this is really the sort of thing you read in Plato's Statesman, the age of Kronos, when men are ruled by gods and therefore are essentially sheep before a shepherd. Uh. In the Platonic Dialogue, the man who talks about all this stuff refrains from mentioning things like philosophers, of whom he is one, or poets, or anything like that. 
when mm-hmm. once you achieve the end of history, good order, give people what they want, there are no human beings left. There are no human things left. Mm-hmm. Somehow human beings have to be reduced to animals. They no longer have to deal with their incompleteness in the sophisticated ways that lead to philosophy and poetry. And they wouldn't have the political problem from which these other things like philosophy and poetry emerge. They would be ruled in an apolitical fashion. Yes, I think that we are kind of experiencing this, though. And it takes the form of collapsing birth rates in the West. right? I think that's an effect of living in a society where pretty much we are taken care of. It's interesting. um, The French theorist uh, Jean Baudrillard talks about how essentially in relation to our technological and economic system, we've actually been reduced to slaves. And he defines slavery as the inability for us to give anything back to the system. The system just keeps giving and giving, right? That's a very Um, good point. I mean, Aristotle explicitly says in the politics that citizens can only be those who are able to help each other and to harm each other. There has to be this possibility for action, for the good and for the bad. Now, take that away. Are you still human? Not exactly, or not obviously. It's it's tricky. And of course, what you mentioned about birth rates, this is again the sort of thing that we hear from the ancient political philosophers. This is what Plato would say, that there's more than philosophy or politics or poetry. Some people just have children to deal with their incompleteness. You have a child, you have to admit that you're mortal, and here's your replacement, and you have to work for that replacement. But it's Mm -hmm. okay, because some part of you goes on, and some part of humanity goes on, and therefore the goodness of being human is affirmed even against death. Yes. What is implied, however, in a society where people don't have children? Maybe it's not so good to be human after all. Yes, I mean, that becomes a very widespread thought. If you look at sort of more recent works of speculative or science fiction, I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, uh, Prometheus, the Ridley Scott film, or, you know, The Cabin in the Woods, right? That there's a kind of a misanthropy that has become not only common among the intellectual elites, but also even among the people, right? That ordinary people now question whether it's good for human beings, you know, for the human species to exist. Yeah. Right? I think it comes from this frustration at our condition of dependency, And I don't know if Moore actually himself, perhaps, I mean, I'm going to have to revisit his work, you know, with this question in mind. To what extent does he predict this kind of situation? I think there is one writer who has, and that would be uh, Michel Houellebecq. Yes, the French novelist who is very famous now, but (coughs) whose earlier works were even more serious on what has progress really delivered to us except the awareness that we don't matter and nothing that we can find matters. He was ahead of the curve. And indeed, Alan Moore was ahead of the curve. It is now obvious that we are undergoing the moral psychological crisis he described, however changed the political situation is. But at the time, nobody paid attention to that. At the time, everybody could see he has hysterical lefty political opinions. And there's some truth to that, of course, but some of it is just exaggeration for the sake of storytelling, for clarification. People didn't pay a lot of attention to what he says about the human condition and the catastrophe that progress has wreaked. But it has forced this question, is it really all that good to be human? In a strange sense, when I look at these fantasies of fascism in America with Watchmen, in England with V for Vendetta, He's actually saying that human being could be a good thing. Admittedly, we have to overcome a horror, fascism. But that is an affirmation of the goodness of human being while acknowledging that being human is being tragic. There's never going to be an end to evil. In a sense, the discipline of suffering evil is necessary for people to admit that you have to fight it off, but you can never fully overcome it. 
Alan Moore started writing V for Vendetta also in 1982. Like Watchman, it's an alternative history, but unlike it, it's an alternative history of the near future. Moore supposes that Margaret Thatcher loses her re-election in 1983 and is replaced by a Labour government that adopts unilateral disarmament, and in the ensuing US-USSR nuclear exchange emerges relatively unscathed. This therefore assumes that the work of heroes as in Watchmen, or rather of Ozymandias, would simply be ineffective and there's no way to preempt nuclear war, so the question becomes how to deal with it. And this leads to the emergence of another kind of hero. In the aftermath of nuclear war, Britain quickly falls into fascism, primarily because of misery and chaos. Post-war prosperity disappears brutally, and with it the dreams and the assumptions about politics and humanity of modern liberalism. Instead, savagery returns, and fascism emerges as a way of keeping control of a terrifying situation that doesn't seem to allow for any improvement. But the founding crimes of this new regime lead in quick order to its destruction by this new hero, V. He is a survivor of government experiments as Miracle Man and of concentration camps. He becomes in this way utterly foreign to the British population, whom he nevertheless tries in some strange way to liberate. What is so strange about it is that he holds the people in contempt for their debasement for having allowed themselves to be enslaved. So he begins in quick order a terrorism campaign against the regime, scares the people as much as their rulers. V seems to act beyond any moral limits, but in fact he has deep moral hopes, since he hopes that punishment can stir people, that suffering could be interpreted not as a call to obedience, but as a call to a different kind of community that preserves justice. This was made in 2005 into a movie by the Wachowskis, creators of The Matrix, just finishing with their trilogy at that time, and they somehow managed to both screw up the story and to make it unpopular. Except, of course, that the Guy Fox mask, which has since become a favorite accoutrement of anarchist kink, became very, very popular. This is V's distinguishing mark in the story. Alan Moore and David Lloyd, his artist, decided to turn V not into a caped superhero, but into a kind of figure of theater from the Elizabethan age. This throwback itself suggests a different understanding of politics and a different requirement for the nation if it is to be some kind of serious political community. Above all, the suggestion is that it is not in the powers of modern technology, but in the historical suffering of the people that freedom is to be found. Yes, I mean, it is a kind of journey to the light, and not just in the main character, but also in the detective who is hunting V. Yes. Right. His conversion at the end is also incredibly powerful. You know, to say that, well, I thought that the system, as terrible as it was, you know, was necessary, but now I realize that, no, I mean, I can't support it anymore. You know, I thought following orders would console me, right, for my losses. And I think what is also quite powerful about V for Vendetta is that it really shows tremendous amounts of suffering, right, that everyone, but especially those who are fascists, they all lost loved ones, 
right? In the years before they set up this fascist government. And that's something that obviously is not really present in the film, right? That there's a kind of melancholy in V for Vendetta that sits in this very unsettling way next to this kind of brutality and cruelty. Cruelty actually has this kind of very strong melancholy dimension to it. Given that fascism was the enemy and we won, the good guys won, it's very hard to acknowledge that it has attractions precisely because people are aware of just how much suffering there is in the world. When they fully experience that, again, human vulnerability comes to the center of our shared experience and the need for solidarity the need to defend ourselves as who we are together becomes very important because my ability individually to defend myself is very, very limited. And in some way, this other part, the negative component of community, how terrifyingly lonely it is to be human, this is becoming very obvious now. Technology has robbed us of the delusion that any one of us could, through celebrity, identify with humanity and be loved by everybody. And therefore, it has robbed us of the opinion that by the production of celebrities, we can make liberalism celebrated, popular, beloved. Instead, everybody can see now that everybody is replaceable. We have new digital technologies that allow you to research people's past, and the powerful, the moral, the good, the whoever, former Vice President Joe Biden, everybody can be humiliated for their past transgressions. That is to say, society can take it out on people who want to be celebrities or heroes, that they too are merely mortal, that they too have limits and shame and secrets and things that they would not dare to utter or publish. And this leaves everybody alone. It is not a new birth of community, trust and faith. It is instead revealing that we really need it because individually none of us matter because all of us are replaceable. Yeah. If, you know, think about Michael Jackson. Now he's a monster. Yes. He used to be a celebrity. Now he's a yeah. monster. All the celebrities are being torn down by digital technology. The mood has changed when once this technology has replaced the previous technology of political communications. Nobody believes in fantasies anymore. Nobody believes in heroes anymore. Everybody believes in scandal. Everybody believes, that is to say, in revealing the ugly truth. I, I'm not saying that in each case they are actually getting to the truth or that in each case the truth really is ugly. But that's what the mood is. And that's how we use our technologies of political communication. The mood has shifted into a very dark place that would have no correspondent in our previous news entertainment fantasy land but is fully at home in Alan Moore's stories. Why are people given to some form of tyranny? Well, if you were to experience the crushing loneliness, vulnerability, suffering, the misery of not being able to take care of people you love, then you might understand that we need each other, that alone none of us matters that much. And this reproduces a phenomenon of human nature. We are always moving in between saying, I am me. And saying, I am humankind. If I speak to other people and expect that they understand what I'm talking about, that's because I am humankind and so are you. Everybody is. This is what we have in common. But of course, we always also want to distinguish ourselves and always also experience rejection. Yes. In which case we are trapped in being ourselves and stuck with being merely particular, merely individual, not universal. The ultimate in that is mortality. Other people cannot feel your pain. Not even Bill Clinton. Yes. But they can certainly not die your death. These experiences are necessary for people to say, we actually need a community. We actually need other people. 
the good things in life require these other things. We cannot do it alone. Yes. And with community comes transformation, right? It's only when we're able to think. I mean, it's not simply a matter of joining a group. I mean, it's also, in some sense, coming into contact with human possibility, right? By discovering what is other to you, that I think comes across in, in V for Vendetta. And to some extent in Watchmen as well, but I think it's much more powerful there. You know, I'm talking about the transformation of Evie from someone who is frightened and, and, and vulnerable, you know, to someone who, you know, can face death herself, right? Who, who is capable of choosing death, right? Um, when she's given a choice between, you know, signing a confession, accusing V or death. So this is what's also very interesting about Moore, of course. And I think also what superhero stories enable us to do is they bring back the image of mastery, right? that it's possible for us to rise above our experiences right, and our circumstances, that we don't have to be controlled by them. Right? But of course, to be able to do this requires a great deal of courage. It requires patience. It requires the willingness to suffer. Yeah, and it requires seeing some good in suffering. What is so abhorrent to us about mastery is saying that evil is actually necessary for us. Yes. You know, let me give you two examples. One of them is Rocky. In Rocky, you have boxing montages. He gets ready for a fight. He's getting great. He's getting strong. But what actually prepares Rocky for his story is years of humiliation that the movie details over its two-hour length. That's a two-hour movie with maybe 10-15 minutes of action. The rest is how miserable it is to be Rocky. To be Mr. Boy Scout in a poor country where there's no opportunity, no economic growth, just a lot of social class misery, contempt, family turning on itself, and all this ugliness. Could you be a good man in that situation? All that suffering prepares him for his nobility even as it threatens to destroy him. Yes. He's not mm-hmm. failing to be a Silicon Valley billionaire or a celebrity. He's failing to be lower class, turning into yeah. an enforcer for a mobster. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you think it's a great story, then you admit at some level that evil is necessary, suffering is necessary to strengthen character, that it's not enough to be soft and successful. Another example is Die Hard. Die Hard is even more obviously an everyman story in which every institution in elite America, the FBI, local politics in LA, corporate capitalism, the media, psychiatric therapeutic academia are all humiliated from the point of view of the everyman American citizen and his everyday moral virtues. That is not good enough anymore. Now we need superheroes because this is no country for everyman. We are in a harsher situation where you need the discipline of suffering, where evil is worse than killing for money. And that's, I think, one of the reasons we are now looking to superheroes. You need more discipline, you need something that every man do not have. You need a kind of stoicism, or you need a kind of unusual insight that you're willing to follow and not back out of. Circumstances of crisis in society have made this change in storytelling. Yes. One of my friends likes to say that people not only remember that Rocky is a boxing movie, but they think he won. (laughs) Yeah. But that was not the meaning of the story. It was the 70s. America wasn't winning. America was in misery. And the question was, could you bear that misery and remain human? Or indeed, attain your human dignity through that misery? But then the 80s came around and it was all winning. Well, we're not 
in that mood anymore, either winning the Cold War or having won it in the materialistic, soul-desiccating 90s. People are undergoing crisis after crisis, society, economy, technology, politics, are we even going to have jobs? Who knows? And so it's much more the case now that people are willing to confront what suffering does to us. In some ways it can debase us, make us miserable, petty. But it might also be what is required for greatness and therefore for a defense of human dignity. But we are, as we suggested a couple of times already, faced with the temptation of saying that actually it's not worth being human. That mm. Actually we should turn to, say, the singularity. Let our technology transform us into robots because robots don't cry and they're not afraid of death. Cold steel, metal doesn't feel. Yeah. Uh, In Moore's recent work, I mean, you know, with his series Providence, you know, which is about the Lovecraft mythos. I mean, it's about the coming of Cthulhu, right, of the inhuman god. Again, I guess it could be a kind of a metaphor, perhaps, for or an allegory of AI. But at the same time, there's something incredibly, you know, repulsive, right? I mean, there's something you know disgusting involved in the process of bringing forth this kind of entity whose worshippers, you know, eat human flesh, and where you know all kinds of um, inhuman practices, you know, are involved. I mean, I haven't been able to give it as much attention as I would like to, but I think it would be interesting to look at like the possible itinerary, you know, from Watchmen through League of Extraordinary Gentlemen to Providence. I mean, this is the project that I plan to work on in the coming years. Uh, but, you know, with, with what you said about suffering, one show that does, I think, explore this question of what suffering does and whether it is necessary, or it actually seems to answer it in the affirmative, is, is Westworld. And Westworld is also about creating a group of masters. We're in a world where yeah, superheroes are very popular, but at the same time, the idea of mastery exerts a kind of irresistible allure precisely because it rejects egalitarianism. Yes. Right? And we have a kind of very strong desire to overcome ourselves that our society is not enabling us to speak out in the open, right? let alone... Um, I mean, of course, you know, self-overcoming is something that I think anyone can practice on their own. But I think this is the ultimate democratic taboo, right? That people really are very suspicious of this idea because it means that their notion of equality is not real. I, I mean, I would say that we live in a world where people want to believe in equality at first sight. Yeah. Right? This idea of mastery really violates that. Yeah, if you're trying so hard to be different than you are, when I'm willing to recognize you as my equal instantly, what, you don't want to be my equal? And, of course, at the same time, you can see people desperately, the more sameness hits us, the more desperately people try to distinguish themselves in any number of ways from celebrity to strange forms of political activism on the internet. If you're more hateful than the other guy or more cynical, then you've distinguished yourself. It's a caricature of conflict and therefore of the possibility of victory and distinction, achievement. But it's very popular, and I think that suggests that people indeed are not satisfied with the therapy that has replaced America. Americans are still restless, but they're not active. And that's a dangerous situation to be in. In some strange way, we're like nothing so much as dispossessed aristocrats. We no longer have the power to act but we still have the pretensions, the privileges in certain ways, and we're desperately trying to find some way to distinguish ourselves, to amuse ourselves at least, if we cannot really have power over ourselves, much less anybody else. 
and that does not give birth to pleasant or nice things. Given enough therapy and comfort, people might react with violence and destruction because at least it feels real. So far, we have said that actually hate never feels real, only love feels real. And it's a very Christian thing, not just a democratic thing to say. We're all in it together. But people might decide to say that instead actually hate feels more real. And the internet gives a lot of evidence for that claim. Yeah. Yes. It's not a place of kitty videos. It's a place of hatred. It's the continuously fueled hatred of mankind because at some level we are deeply dissatisfied with our situation. And so going back to Lovecraft and Cthulhu makes perfect sense given our psychology now. Again, it's a critique of progress. Lovecraft was among the first to say that the most powerful things are not in a bright scientific atheistic future. They are in a dark past where monsters dwell. It is not the newest, furthest in the future things. It's the oldest, furthest in the past things that are the most powerful. And we think that in getting rid of Jesus Christ and getting rid of our old nationality, we're getting better because we have more scientific, global, cosmopolitan power. But what if we just discover horror at the end of this road of liberation? Yes. And in what does horror consist? There's no God or country to help you because you don't matter. Life is merely horror. Eating other people is what every other animal would do. And you're no better. And there's a deep self-hatred involved in that that is, of course, one of the dangers of progress. What if it goes wrong? What if all the promises turn out not to be true? Will we still be human then? Will we bear the burden of being human if these rewards turn out not to be forthcoming? There's another comic by Alan Moore that you mentioned from hell in your book you discussed this and it was only reading your book that i realized actually this makes perfect sense as an alan moore comic but i never knew it even though i saw the johnny depp movie from hell because hollywood bastardized the story beyond recognition i'm not saying that v for vendetta is a great adaptation it's bad but you can recognize the story Uh watchmen is pretty good although it's not great but in this case they completely screwed up everything and it was only reading your thoughts on this that i realized Yeah, let's look at ourselves from the point of view of the age of imperial grandeur. Have we amounted to what we were hoping to get? Are we now the human beings full of success and power we once hoped we would be? Was all the sacrifice worth it? Yeah, it's the kind of moment I think that Moore is so great at evoking. He shows us really terrible things. But of course, the times that we do these things, we feel totally justified. These terrible actions are committed in the name of some kind of good, right? And I think this happens also uh, among uh, revolutionaries, right? Like how far do they have to go in order to you know, make people accept the new order? Or even like get people to act with like everyday decency, just like they did under the old regime. And of course, civilization you know, has entailed tremendous sacrifices. But I I think this is also interesting, like how it's also this moment of moral reckoning, very strangely enough, right? That morality seems to come at this point of exhaustion, right? That it's the signal that we need to move in a different direction, you know, or that we need to, you know, reevaluate the course of things. Yeah, morality is based on certain assumptions about the power of choice, the goodness of choice, and therefore that it somehow safeguards more or less everything we need, or at any rate, most of what we need and we'll deal with the rest later. That ignores the question of how did we end up being moral in the first place? Were we always as kind and peaceful as we are now? 
And was it kindness and peace that got us here, therefore? What is the place of violence and destruction in our history? And where does it stand to our possibilities and our actions now? Can we simply wish away danger? Would it be enough to just hate hate? To just treat danger as dangerous? To just wish for more safety and security and excuse what we do in the name of that? And damn anything else? These would seem to be the terms on which our politics has been conducted lately. Whether you want more market regulation or more government regulation, you're saying we can take some risks, we can do some things, if there's going to be less risk and less action later. If we're forever doing more rational control, then it's going to be fine. Morality is going to get easier and easier, and it's going to be okay, because it doesn't ask much of us. It's not going to ask for sacrifices. It's not going to ask for us to deal with great uncertainty, much less with failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that the lefty political hysteria in Alan Moore graphic novels is a kind of necessary fight against that. You cannot simply tell me that there's nothing tragic left in human being. The more people pretend life is aggressively normal, the more you have these extreme reactions in storytelling. And horror is also an obvious reaction to that. You don't think there's any tragedy left because our science, natural and political, has conquered chance? Well, there's worse things than tragedy. Let's look at horror next. What if life itself isn't good? And so these questions necessarily arise again because storytelling at some level comes out of dissatisfaction, not contentment. As I said about Plato's statesman, poetry is not a concomitant of the age of happy contentment. Yes. Or as Henri de Monterland would put it, happiness writes in white ink on white paper. <laughs> yes. So some form to our dissatisfaction is necessary. And some part of it has to be admitting that we have defined ourselves into a situation that we can no longer deal with or improve. And is going to take shocks to recover what we had when we had more power of action and of comprehension. Yeah. Well, I think also that there is a kind of danger of wanting to expiate past sins as well. You know, for example, if you told me back in 2003 that the big issue in 2016, 2017 would be Confederate statues, I would have been really shocked, Mm -hmm. right? It's very strange. I thought, for example, that the United States would be stricken by a kind of guilt consciousness over the loss of life in the Middle East. But that hasn't happened, right? Instead, we've had a kind of internal conflict over the meaning of America that hasn't really addressed what the United States has done abroad. It's almost as though we can only feel outraged about things that we can't do anything about. The past is safe, right? The past is not going to come back to haunt you. And it's crazy in a way that we're closing down. We're no longer aware even of the consequences of our actions in the world. We can only obsess over ourselves, even with ourselves, about the one thing we can't do anything about, which is the past. And I think that shows that as moral intuition and public religion, liberalism is dying. We're coming to a point where we have to drag out the corpses of the past, put them on trial and kill them all over again, which is crazy. But it does reveal something that's always been true about progress. We need intellectuals to fight a rearguard action to make sure that Christianity never comes back, to make sure that nationalism never comes back, to make sure that our past stays dead, because that's how we prove we're superior to it. But it also creates this temptation to think that all the bad things must come from the past. We didn't do enough. We didn't go far enough. Yes. Yeah. But that is essentially wrong. We need to deal with what's happening now, with the consequences of our own success. 
Well, you could say that moralism essentially is the opinion according to which our virtues don't come with any problems. Yes. That evil can only come from where we're weak. It cannot come by our virtues or our strengths. And therefore, we need more progress to fix the problems with progress. Yeah. We need more liberalism to fix the problems with liberalism. And then we'll be perfect. Counter to that, the sort of storytelling Alan Moore offers suggests that there's some good in evil that we're not willing to admit. And there is a lot of evil in the good in us. It is certainly making us weak and incompetent. And I think it's also what makes Rorschach such a powerful character, a haunting character. You know, there's someone who is born, you know, sort of the price of an affluent liberal society that has gone deeply wrong and deeply awry, right? And he's the one who bears all the scars of it, which, yes. you know, do not turn him into a meek and Christ-like figure. It makes him very ferocious. But there's something about him that actually becomes the collective conscience. It's what makes his, his death at the hands of Dr. Manhattan at the end of Watchmen so unsettling, right? Because it's almost as though the whole story is being erased before our eyes. That somehow if Rorschach were to survive and tell the story, it may end the world, but somehow that would have saved something else, right? Perhaps something yeah. maybe more precious than the world. So Rorschach is the only guy who actually cares about justice. And yeah. he is the only guy who preserves this impulse from the original heroism or vigilantism. You cannot let weak women and children be destroyed by evil people. Yeah. Other things we may have conflicts about, but we need to have iron-hot certainty about this and to act, therefore, on it. And indeed, his experience of suffering has made him ferocious and strong. And he doesn't have moral doubts precisely for this reason. He understands that since evil is real, you do have to fight it. Yeah. That kind of commitment to justice is impractical. It will ruin you. Nobody is good enough for that. But Rorschach comes close. And there is something sacrificial, therefore, in his death. He would rather go down with all the dead people than live a lie. Yeah. And in that sense, he's a rebel against the liberal order that says that whatever price we pay, we're not going to talk about that. Nobody's going to get him to shut up. Because of something that's, again, tragic involved in the character of justice. Rorschach is a punisher. In the book, you call this the ethics of striking second. The tat for the tit. That yes. is the logic of justice. It's just it for tat. Because when somebody dies, there's nobody's going to bring him back to life. None of us is Jesus Christ to resurrect the dead. All you can do is punish the killer. And everybody else seems to have fallen below at least this standard. Yes. He is the only one who embodies it. And of course, he takes it to a tragic end to end up thinking that tit for tat actually has a power of its own. That if you punish enough, the world gets better. But that's not enough. But he is an interesting contrast to a world where we say, actually, you shouldn't be punishing people because that's cruel. I would say that he's the one who hangs on to his humanity, right? In a way that the others do not. Yeah, because that's the basic duty. This is the duty that God tells about to Noah. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And of course, mankind promptly forgets it. And so you get Sodom and Gomorrah, where divine justice does the punishment that human beings have failed to do. But that is the basic duty of justice, which is another way of saying about what brings on apocalypse. People forget to do the duty of justice. How yes. human can you really be if you don't do it? In Utopia, you can only be a sheep. Yes. But it's ugly. It's as ugly as Rorschach is. Who can deal with that? Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for joining me on this long, broad-ranging conversation, which I hope will convince people, first of all, to pick up your book, From Utopia to Apocalypse, and secondly, to read more Alan Moore. 
and let's do some more of this stuff soon. In the book, you also talk about Miyazaki, and we could do another conversation on that. Oh, yes. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I uh, also, you know, learn a lot from talking to you. Uh, <laughs> and, and I guess that's what I really love about these podcasts is that there's a kind of a process involved, you know, where trying to f- figure out things to say, but I also say things that would not have occurred to me to say, right, precisely because of our conversation. Likewise, and hopefully people are interested in these conversations precisely because this is what conversation has to offer. As I say, celebrities are dead and the whole world of television where somebody broadcasts at you and you passively tune in. Hopefully there will be more conversation in our future. Yes, I look forward to it. All the best, Peter. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Goodbye, Jesus.